makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touched the earth at once, and I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. And this is an all-native, hosted, all-native, produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year of broadcasting, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio, and you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as archives on First Voices Indigenous org. and I'd like to welcome you again to First Voices Radio. Well, the idea that a feature of nature like a river is, is a living being is nothing new to Indigenous and other traditional peoples around the world, while the Western philosophical system is underpinned by the idea that humans are separate from nature and in dominion over it. Indigenous philosophical systems tend to conceive of humans as part of nature and in relationship with nature. It's not surprising that indigenous peoples are at the forefront of a growing movement to acknowledge the legal rights of nature. Rights of Nature is a growing global movement to transform indigenous values into enforceable laws that can protect the planet for all life. And indigenous environmental leaders share their approaches to adopting rights of nature into tribal governance for protecting Mother Earth and indigenous rights. Alex Bunting, who is our first guest, Alex Bunting, who is Aleut and Yupik, has served as a manager, consultant, and applied researcher for indigenous social and environmental programming for over 15 years. And he's an accomplished researcher, writer, media maker, and curriculum developer. And she has published widely about indigenous and environmental issues in articles in American Indian Quarterly, the Journal of Museum Education, and American Ethnology, Ethnologist. She has a book, 2015, So How Long Have You Been Native? And Life as an Alaskan Native Tour Guide, 
which won the Alaskan Library Association Award for its originality and depth. In addition to writing, Alexis has contributed to several Indigenous-themed productions, including co-producing and writing the script for a documentary nominated for the Native American Film Awards. She's on a panel on the Indigenous Rights of Nature, a panel discussion organized by Vision Maker Media in partnership with Pioneers Indigeneity Program. And actually, the program will be available, and you can find out more about Pioneers Indigeneity Program at pioneers.org. That's B-I-O-N-E-E-R-S dot org. And more about the Indigenous Rights of Nature panel at visionmaker.org. I had spoken with um, Alexis Bundin yesterday, and we had to go where we wanted just to converse. That's what we wanted to do. Just converse, have a little dialogue with each adding to this conversation rather than just an interview, a mechanical interview. And often we do this on First Voices so that people get a, a viewpoint and a perspective and even the energy of how Native people tend to view things in the same same context, I would say, of Mother Earth. We begin by talking about this, the languages that are missing and what is uh, exclusive uh, in other languages that makes uh, the restriction to nature inaccessible in thoughts and concepts, um, even though we can describe a wind or a sunset as beautiful, but it's actually different in how you are living that sunset and being the sunset. So we go from there, and I welcomed uh, Alexis Bunting to First Voices Radio. Again, thank you. This is why it's so important for people to learn languages outside of these ones that emphasize like an embodiedness of discrete objects being discrete from each other because they're not everything's not and if we spoke Lakota or other languages we'd be able to see that all the whole world would be that's why we say worldview (laughs) the whole world would be different the respect of cultures I think is very lacking in this society because it tends to divide a lot of people where in a relationship, and I found this out more so from an elder who's not here anymore, Virgil Kilstraight, and he um, on the middle of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And at the end of the day, I went to ask him, I said, do you know of a word in Lakota for domination? And he, he immediately said, no, no word, no concept for domination in Lakota, because mm-hmm. our whole language is based on relationship. Mm-hmm. To not just the the human, but all life and all all things, quote unquote, things. So you can't talk in domination, and that just yeah. opened up a whole new universe for me. Because because mm-hmm. we're all based on dogma in this language and all the Latin Romance languages based on we're based on on dogma and hierarchy, and we try to make sense out of that through thousands and thousands of years. When you see nature, where we're trying to define nature to fit our needs rather than ourselves fitting nature's needs. When I read what you all are doing with the community environment is sacred, the indigenous rights of nature, I was thinking about what languages or what language is speaking that nature movement. So that would be a question. Yes, I I, I think I understand what you're saying. And it's a kind of a tricky, complicated uh Issue When I first started working on a tribally led uh, rights of nature initiative, you know, we met with non-native 
lawyers and they told us that the rights of nature movement was started by uh, a lawyer who named Christ, a legal scholar named Christopher Stone, who wrote an article called should, should trees have standing. And of course, you know, we all thought that was crazy, you know, if we are native because <laughs> it started since time immemorial, <laughs> you know, and our communities, many of them, we still have people who haven't forgotten those lessons and to interact with nature in a way that respects nature's ability to thrive and be itself. And even with the language, even the word rights is problematic because this is coming out of a, uh, a Western uh, European derived legal framework, which is based on property rights, which is based on extraction and domination and colonial capitalism. So we're really trying to make nature have a way to, um, to be itself, herself, in a system that is superimposed and a social construct by a certain group of humans. And really, uh, we have heard some objectives um, among different uh, leaders, native leaders, indigenous leaders around the world that we do know we're trying to fit a, a round peg into a square box. But we also have to be practical and realize that we need to do all the different things to protect nature, work within the dominant legal framework, work within our own customary laws, work within nature, and above all, work within nature's laws. That's very clear to me that this is the work that needs to be done, but also there is an ongoing challenge for listeners and I would say occidental thinkers. There is a familiar, familiarity with nature. Indigenous peoples, no doubt, have that familiarity and they are being removed as we speak to this day all over the world. Native people are being removed from their original habitat, so to speak, in nature. And the loss of those languages to be familiar with nature, for instance, in 2017, one of the major dictionaries had taken 43 words, I believe, out of the dictionary that were natural names like daffodil, um, anything to do with nature, because there was not room for it. But yet there was room enough to include technical words like the texting that we do and the gaming that we do. So these are all artificial intelligence words so that we could get along more economically within the systems of humanity. But yet it was leading us away totally from being familiar with nature along those lines of thought process. What do you think about that, Alexis? I think you're right. And um Incidentally, I was just in a, at an event with a group of biologists and ethnobotanists who were having a debate. There's a debate going on about whether we should remove Latin taxonomic names uh, to plants because they do not fit the way uh, people, humanity really needs to understand our relationship with different life forms. And it struck me, I remembered a conversation, actually it was, it wasn't a conversation. It was a tour, actually. I used to work for Sitka Tribe of Alaska's tribal tours, and they're not my tribe, and I only know a little smattering of uh, the Clinket language. But uh, the tour was a group of doctors from the lower 48 who uh, wanted to learn about uh, medicine, traditional medicines. And they brought a woman who is very, an elder named Jessie, who is very knowledgeable of these medicines. And we took 
we took five steps into the woods <laughs> and then it was two and a half hours right within those five feet because there was so much going on. But one of the most important plants there was a very medicinal plant that we all know about uh, in Southeast Alaska called uh, the Devil's Club. That's the English name for it. I, I probably will butcher the Clinket name for it, but it's like sax. I can't even say it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm really bad at pronouncing that language. But um, she, in English, she would say, oh, this is a stalk. The roots, roots go into the ground. Um, here are the leaves. And in English, the best you can get to is that you can, you know, make a tea with the roots and do some one other thing with the leaves. But Jesse had different names for each different part of the roots, each different part of the leaves. There must have been, I can't remember, but it was a lot of words for things that we would have one word for and it had to do with the worldview and the way that um, the way that you prepare different parts of the plant for different remedies because that plant was so medicinal it's one of those super medicines that um, that if you prepare it a certain way and do the right prayers and you do it in the right mindset it, it can help you with many different ailments so the point is to say that the language help to understand the plant's connections to humans, but also um, the landscape and the ground that it was in. It's not just a plant on its own. You have to think about the air, the rain, did you, what side of the bed you woke up on the morning, all those things. So language is just so key to understanding nature and um, fighting to, you know, they say the big quote you always hear is that indigenous peoples are stewards of 80% of the world's last remaining biodiversity. And um, there is an absolute correlation between uh, traditional knowledge, ancestral languages, and, uh, and saving the planet and understanding, you know, it's philosophical, understanding why we're here and what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I'm thinking about the line of thinking here, information. Western people, those who are filled with data information, they, they use this to say that's knowledge, which is a key to understand what knowledge truly is. And I think about what does knowledge turn into with Native people is because the wisdom is the experience. And this is why your elder could not just delineate, but actually relate to rather than connect, but relate to how the parts like our bodies in, in certain languages are all named after nature. They're mimicking nature so, somewhat. So when I'm thinking about that the term indigenous peoples can save the earth, I often question that. Wait, my elders were telling me, no, we don't have to save the earth. That's a Western way of panic, like um, a, a last ditch, the last thing you can do. But what they're saying is if we just leave the earth to do her thing instead of trying to apply our plan of saving then she will definitely do that. She's actually saving us rather than us having to save the earth. But what your elders were doing as well as mine are doing is that they are living the experience with the earth, with that language that you said with your elder was doing. And that's what that reminds me of doing. I, I agree. I think you reframed it exactly the way that we need to frame this. And I, I guess my subtext was that if we can speak those languages, then that message will come through. But there's no reason we can't say it in plain English like we just did too. And I think that I don't even think of this as a, I, I want to clarify, as a dichotomy between Indigenous, non-Indigenous, Native, non-Native. I mean, I have 
ancestors from Europe, you know, and there's plenty of, I, the cool thing about the rights of nature movement that I've noticed is even um, outside of tribal areas like municipalities that are adopting rights of nature, countries putting it into their constitutions, is that if you say rights of nature to just about anybody anywhere, they get it. It's intrinsically, somehow they get it. People just get it. And to know that, you know, back in 2008, was it that Bolivia or Ecuador actually put it in their constitution to adopt the rights of nature? Why it takes such a long process for the people to get it, so to speak, like you say. Yes, you're right. Um, Ecuador adopted rights of nature into their constitution in 2008. And um, I wasn't personally there from that. I do know people who were involved with that. And I've heard many fragmented sets of stories that I'm trying to make sense of about how that went down. But I do know, um, I do know some that uh, some tribes are looking into it right now. And I won't say their names to protect their privacy because it hasn't been adopted into the tribal constitutions yet. But of course, there is a long process of um, grassroots organizing at the tribal level, um, all the work you have to do to figure out the language, having lots of meetings with knowledge bearers, culture bearers, language speakers, uh, communities, trying to find out and explain, you know, some these debates happen at the tribal level as well. Um, you know, some people will say, yes, we're just gonna protect everything, but other, other tribes, go about it differently. Is it a body of water you want to protect? Is there a discrete set of ceremonial sites that you want to protect? And they have these debates, and not debates, discussions, meetings. We all yeah. know what those are. And yeah. uh, it takes a few months. And then you have to bring, if you, if, and then if you are a, a federally recognized tribe with an IRA constitution, that's mm -hmm. one we're doing a lot of legal research on now then there's a whole long process of uh, bringing it to the tribal council and getting the vote, sending it back to DC, waiting for DC to come back. And by the time that's passed, if you did it as fast as humanly possible, at minimal, it's two and a half years, but we know how we work and it's probably more like three to 10 or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna take you back to something my daughter said when she was four. And recently another uh, friend said her daughter said the very same thing at four years old because you know they hear native people speaking about mother earth a lot almost to where it's a romance and and yet that gets in the way when they romanticize native thought and wisdom and knowledge and thinking that we know everything but here it is inherent i think you were alluding to the inherency in all human beings uh when they relate to earth that we do need clean water we do need clean air and so on but the four-year-old, these four-year-olds were saying, if Mother Earth is our mother, who is the mother of Mother Earth? So I appropriately called my mother, and she quickly said, Nasuya. And in our language, that means um, basically that the head is a seed of the heart. The seed of Mother, the herb Mother Earth, Mother is seed. So it's inherent in the young people who are familiar with this language, and yet you described a process of two and a half years. And that's what I mean. The indigenous languages seem to have a simple clarity, yet complex 
a complexity because they're involving their relationship, not in isolation with restricted language that we have to drill it into those peoples who hold the laws to give nature rights as if we really could. If we think the other way, nature has given us a privilege to live within her sphere. It brings up a couple of things for me. Uh, when I was starting to um, kind of write and think about how to support uh, tribal leaders in capacity building, one day I had the question, does everybody call it Mother Earth? It just struck me because we just take it for granted. And so I started researching it and looking into different um, tribes around the world and looking at their cosmology and I just, I don't have the answer for sure, but I do know that, um, and even, you know, um, pagan beliefs in Europe, pre-Christian beliefs, but I have found that this idea of like um, a mother earth and a father sky or a father moon and a creative being um, is very, it's surprisingly universal. And maybe that's why we get it as humans. And then the other thing that came to mind for me is um, one thing I learned when I was young that always stuck with me is um, some elders. And I've heard this in other places outside of Alaska as well. But an elder said something in I'd asked a question about, I didn't know have the words for colonization or anything like that at the time. I was younger, but I asked some kind of question about uh, the American takeover of Alaska and what's going to happen to us and what's, and we have our native corporations in Alaska. What's going to, I somehow I realized that as a post angst and post 1972 person that, um, and I realize I'm being very granular for people who don't know Alaska, but I was like, what's going to happen to our native corporations? You know, I knew it was all going to dissolve. And the elder said, you know what? We were here before the Russians came. We were here after the Russians got here. We were here before the Americans came and we'll be here long after the Americans are gone. And that's just speaking to people. And that gave me a great, tremendous sense of peace. I knew it would be long after I was dead probably, but, um, but it's the same way with nature to us. And it no. should be no worry and it should actually make you peaceful if you understand that you are nature and that we're all made of stardust, whatever you want to call it. In my region of Alaska, we believe in reincarnation, but it's not in any kind of woo-woo way that yeah, you hear yeah. about in the mainstream society, but it's a, it's a peacefulness because it doesn't matter. It's all, I wouldn't be like Bob Marley and like, <laughs> we're all one, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry about a thing. Uh, <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. And sort of, Quite often, you have to say so many words in English to mean one thing. So there's this living relationship. And I think that's what you're really getting at when you're you're holding this indigenous rights of nature movement. I think that's an ongoing thing. But now it's our turn, so to speak, as indigenous folks to, to, to express it the way it has been and not lost. People think indigenous languages are lost, yet the, the memory is contained within the land yeah, but I think it's it's impossible to take all of those concepts and put it in, back into the box of the Occidental languages. Yes, uh, and this here gets to um, why um, one particular tribe, they were very close to um, 
to adopting this and they kind of got stuck at the constitutional amendment language because it was a great it's a great responsibility to put to this into english into your tribal constitutions that then step two is it even enforceable and it's very difficult to codify and into law um but i said fortunately though you know tribal constitutions are not they're set in stone but you can always make an amendment to them it's a long process but uh, and then i said you know the second thing to think about is the enforceability of it so people think that there's kind of two camps here there is a group of people um native leaders who are real trailblazers that see outside of the box they put our minds into in public school and they say we just need to do this and then we'll figure it out and it'll spread and it will lead to the change. But then there's people who are kind of within the practical realm of what is, and they say, well, what's the point? We can't, we're not going to be able to enforce this anyway. So, but it is from a practical standpoint, an opportunity to stretch and test sovereignty as it relates to the uh, political immunity that our na native nations have in our nation to nation relationship with the federal government. And I think a lot of people don't realize that if tribal nationhood in the U.S. didn't exist, the USA wouldn't exist. It was just a bunch of rebels fighting Britain. And in order to get legitimacy as a country on the international stage, they had to have treaties with tribal nations that they recognized as separate sovereign entities. So we should be able to govern, um, not govern, but support nature's will to be itself through the laws and flip those laws back on its head. You know, you wrote a book called, uh, How Long Have You Been Native? Um, and I'm thinking about how long have we been Americans? I remember being called in just Indian, and then it turned into American Indian, then it turned into Native American, hyphen, and it was hyphenated before that. And I'm thinking about how long have you been Native? And and I think we've all been Native. You hear this, you hear the saying, we're all indigenous to the planet, but how many of us are actually living like we are natives, like indigenous to the planet. What do people who are listening all over the world, when they listen to native people talk about the rights of nature, it feels like we're closer to saying that than some, you know, science-driven, we must save the earth because we're going to measure it, and this is what's happening to the earth, but who are they saving it for? I think we need to rectify the tension between um, quote unquote modernity and progress and technology and nature. We all saw how awesome things got during COVID when we could hear birds again. I mean, if we live in suburban or urban areas um, because there were no more cars everywhere and that was great. It gives us a taste of where we can be. But from a practical standpoint, I would like to see the movement um, put an end to as much corporate driven extraction as possible. And I believe that we can find other ways of fueling our economy. Most people aren't going to give up their cars and their comfortable houses and, you know, turn a knob and have a hot water shower because most people, not most people, but many people in developed nations mm. and places within developed nations uh, have never experienced what it's like to just really you know, 
camp out for a month, do subsistence, um, talk to the birds, be able to hear what they're trying to say to you (laughs) because they didn't grow up with it. But it would be nice for people to get a little closer to that. And no matter who you are, um, what ethnic or whatever label background, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to wherever we live now. I don't live where I grew up or where my ancestors are from. I live in California now (laughs) on the coast. And uh, whew, it's expensive, but um, <laughs> but um, I can do things like fight for the preserve near my house, the former Fort Ord military base mm. that they're always wanting to develop houses on and use up all our water. I can plant native plants in my garden. I can learn what makes good tea that was always from here. Yeah. I, you know, I can do, there's all kinds of things we can do on a small scale and a broad scale at the same time that, uh, kind of plays into a vision for the future. And you know what? I'm much happier for doing those kinds of things yeah. that make us yeah. more content and not um, not stuck in like the illusion of what's going to make you happy or have a fulfilling life. So on our final thought process, retaining, restoring, rejuvenating, regenerating language is often with the people that we live with and the living languages that we speak, the rights of nature you and I have on this technical platform here is often going to be heard. It's going to touch somebody else. Is there any final words about what you can give to the people? This panel is for Earth Day uh, that's going to be aired on Wednesday. It's featuring some really brilliant people that I very much admire and look up to. And I think that when I go on the panel, I'll just probably put on my egg head cap and talk about the technical aspects of the law but everybody else who's going to be on this panel Kara, Penny, Dion they're they're going to have a lot of really really great things to say so I just hope everybody joins us. The Rights of Nature is a global growing global movement to transform indigenous values into enforceable laws and that's your part that can protect the panel planet for all life and indigenous environmental leaders share as you said, adopting rights of nature and the process of that. So in the adopting your rights of nature, are, are we in a sense we are adapting? Are we adapting our way to earth rather than having the earth adapt to us? Because that's been ongoing for so long that we are trying to make the earth adapt to our needs. And now with the indigenous voices that you're talking about, it seems like there's another perspective that we need to adapt our ways to the earth. I would, I would agree with that. And I think we already know that anything humans were trying to do was futile if it meant bending the earth to what we wanted to do, because now we have all our weird weather and things aren't predictable anymore. And our elders up north have been saying that for 30, 40 years, since the seventies, they noticed it way before the scientists said, all this and so we just can't do it we need to just give up (laughs) surrender to what needs to happen (laughs) (laughs) you're so right i'm just on the way going just a thought is when i was young i read a story about i think it was elders in alaska and they had watched the earth for so long that every 70 years a certain bird returns every 70 years and that just blew my mind. And the second one was an, an indigenous person um, from, I think it was Chile, who said 
Yeah, that bird that we call an albatross, once it leaves the land, it flies up to seven years without ever touching land again. How do they do that? You know, the elders and the albatross and all the connections that we don't know about, but they they live the experience. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I'm looking for, the, the voices that you're coming out with the, the panel on indigenous rights for mother, uh, the mother, right? So, but I want to just thank you. Um, any last thoughts you can give to the people, Alexis? Well, even, even what you're saying about um, learning, you know, learning from nature, again, anybody can do that. Of course, in our communities that have been in place for thousands of years, that's where the real expert knowledge is. But yeah. just sitting, just sitting in my backyard since Corona started, um, I've learned a ton about how the animals interact, how they predict weather, or they know it before me, actually. And, you know, what's going on? There's a lot of drama out there <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and, um, but anybody can do this. This is not just something that you have to grow up and live a certain lifestyle and speak your language. Otherwise, you can't legitimately support this movement. Really, it's for anybody, everybody. Yeah. And we all feel it now, right? Yeah. And so it's good. So, but thank you so much. And I think another way that you've reminded me is that we can only learn lessons from the earth. We can never teach earth lessons. Yeah. Yeah. I And I would say like, listen to, I mean, every culture is different, but, yeah. you know, listen to yeah. the, to the older folks who would say, you know, listen more, talk less. That's right. Watch more, talk less. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you, Alexis. It's an honor to, I know you're busy schedule. It's an honor to hear you and, and, and talk with you. And, and I'm glad that people are listening to this and being with us here on First Voices Radio. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Really yeah. And you can find out more about Bioneers Indigeneity program at Bioneers.org and more about the Indigenous Rights of Nature panel at VisionMakerMedia.org. And we'll be available beginning on Earth Day, April 22nd. And you've been listening to Alex Bunton, who is Aleut and Yupik. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghostors. You can feel it in the streets. On a day like this, the heat, it feels like summer. I feel like summer. I feel like summer You can feel it in the streets On a day like this The heat, I feel like summer She feel like summer This feel like summer I feel like seven billion souls and move around the sun Rolling faster, faster, not a chance to slow down Slow down Men who made machines that want what they decide Trying to tell the children, please slow down. 
And that was Feel Like Summer to cover off the original, Childish Gambino, excuse me. And that's a cover done by a local group, and it's on YouTube, and I can't find out who the these people are, but I'll find it out. And I thank you for joining First Voices Radio. Our next guest is uh, Nia DeGroat, who is a Dene fashion writer and multidisciplinary creative based in Flagstone, Arizona. He's originally from Mariano Lake, New Mexico, and is a citizen of Navajo Nation. And uh, his work has been published in Indian Country Today, Academy Art U News, Fashion School Daily, and Native Max Magazine. And I wanted to talk with Nia about his February 1st, 2021 column in Indian Country Today titled, Wait a Minute, This is Stolen Land, Joe Biden's Inauguration Missed the Mark by Including the Tone Deaf American Folk Song. And uh, we keep up with uh, Nia at... N-I-A-Y-A-D-E-G-R-O-A-T-E dot com, Nia DeGroat dot com. And, and so I'd like you to join and, and give a listen to what Nia has to say, because it's very, very telling. The Nia DeGroat was in a recent article in Indian Country Today, and speaking about January 20th, like most Americans, as he watched the inauguration of Joe Biden, the 46th president of the United States, his speech was full of hope, empathy, and resolve. He vowed to lower the temperature 
of our political discourse and put an end to the uncivil war ignited by Trump. But one thing that stood out in the uh, was the fact that even though it felt good at, in within inauguration ceremony, so to speak, there was a certain singer who came on board and basically dampened a lot for those native peoples who are aware, such as yourself, Nia, about this woman who sang, this land is your land. You take it from there, Nia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like everyone else that day, I was excited to uh, watch the inauguration of Joe Biden because I voted for him and I was excited. And uh, up to that point, I had watched everything. I was glued to CNN in terms of Trump's impeachments and the election and the um, the uh, speeches. And so when he won, uh, I was excited because uh, the voter tur turnout this year, uh, especially here in Arizona, amongst the natives was very high. And so I, I believe and I know that it was us as the indigenous nations here in Arizona who help um, make Arizona blue. Uh, and so I was as so I was watching the inauguration and I was watching it with my mother and we were both excited and uh, we, we were enjoying it because we we're both Lady Gaga fans. And she was there and we missed seeing the Obamas and they were there. And then uh, we were watching the program and then JLo comes on and I, I have to preface the preface this to say I'm I love JLo. Um, the article wasn't meant to uh, uh, dis disregard her, but the moment she started singing the first phrase, "This land is your land," I was like, oh, my heart drop <laughs> and my mother's drop, and we it, it was just that um, that um, I can I'm sure Native people around the country um, all let out a uh, a sigh of grief and ugh, not this song again. As I'm looking up the fact that I've heard that J-Lo is actually part native herself. Yeah, I read that too. I think so because uh, I forget where I heard that. I think she was doing a Selena interview when she played Selena Quintanilla in the 90s. Yeah, and then being part native, which would mean as informed as you and your mother are, as well as a lot of Native people about this song, it goes to say that a lot of people who are claiming to be part Native don't agree with the viewpoints, you know, that you have, I have, a lot of Natives have. Maybe it's because of their lack of experience. What do you think about that, Nia? I think so. I think it is a lack of um, uh, understanding because uh, most people who say they're part something or a little bit of this, it's almost performative, like to get uh, assurance from other Native people that they're validated in um, something they're doing or not doing. And so I feel like they're very um, disconnected from their culture, that it just becomes performative, like, oh, it's almost like saying my best friend's Black, my best friend's gay, that sort of um, uh, phrasing. When we talk about this land, <laughs> is your, your land, I hear that it's just a giveaway. And when I think about the original song that was written and sung by Woody Guthrie back in those days, people are, are using 
the fact that, well, he was singing about a desperate time in the country in the 1930s when the Dust Bowl and depression hit. And so people needed to get along. So they were, this land was, uh, this land is your land is, is somewhat of a community song. And yet you hear non-natives singing it at every festival. They're actually disappearing the thoughts that there were any native people here because as I see it, the, the territories and boundaries that native had and in that sense were morphing. They always changed and they moved. It wasn't this is my land or this is your land, but this is how we use the land together. And I think that's the whole idea about it without without boundaries. So when did you find out when you first remember that song and having that thought that your mother probably told you about, but to think mm -hmm. for yourself, this land is your land. Um, yeah, I was very long. I was very young. And um, I was, of course, you know, we learn it in um, elementary school. It's a nursery, almost like a kumbaya, like everyone's uh, the same. <laughs> and so I, I guess I was singing it outside of class in front of my mother. And she like was, I could see it in her eyes, um, in, in her reaction. She's like, ugh. And then so she gave me a, a pep talk, sort of, because I was a kid, so I probably wouldn't have really understood. But for um, I was always fortunate in that regard because my mother is very um, conscious and she's an activist and she's a language uh, activist. and she's, So she's very in tune with uh, social issues. And so I've always had that um, upbringing, just being around her. You know, it's, it's very telling, um, that experience you have, because a lot of this was ingrained within our native communities, and it's part of the colonization, whereas a lot of languages that I know of, indigenous languages, don't have the formula of colonization and decolonization since it didn't exist within our original thought processes as native people. In fact, it was a formula given to us that this is what we must do to relearn, to to retain and sustain our, our languages and our cultures. So when I go back to this land is your land, in, in the United States, it's like one of the most famous folk songs, but the lyrics were written by, of course, Woody Guthrie in 1940, but it's based already on an existing melody by the Carter family tune when it was called When the World's on Fire. And it in this response to, quote-unquote, uh, Irving, Irving Berlin, who wrote God Bless America. So you see, we're, we're still covering up the fact that everybody wants a piece of the American pie, but mm -hmm. they, forget, they forget who owns the bakery. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's a, I, I like it. No, uh, it's funny you say, um, you mentioned the, the, original, the, the guy who wrote the, uh, the uh, folk song and I got a little, I, I got a little pushback from the comment section saying, well, that's not what he meant. Uh, yeah. they, appro they appropriated his words and I was like, mm, yeah, but it was still from a Western mindset. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't champion indigenous voices. Very true. Why do you think he's, he wasn't championing native voices? I believe because uh, it, it was a song about when um, I think I believe Western expansion and how um, everyone wasn't getting their fair share in that aspect. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, in, in the original song, it met, 
mentioned California, um, to, from New York Island when it was really from Staten, New York Island, right? To the Redwood Forest, to the Gulf Stream. These are all names that are, are not uh, indigenous. They're foreign, actually, the idea that God blessed America for me. But then it comes into contention. Who's God and what is America? Yeah. What was what what was America and what was God before they arrived here? Basically, what, what do you think about this returning to this original thinking? And that's what I'm feeling from you when I read the article about what you said about that song. This 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 land is your land. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, to be honest, uh, even before um, the inauguration day. Um, well, I should say, when I heard the song, it just um, reaffirmed that Indigenous people are invisible in this country. And even before the inauguration day, CNN on election night put up a graphic and they were listing the vote tally by race and it had white, African-American, Latino, and then I believe it was uh, Asian and then their other became something else. <laughs> and then <laughs> it was like, what is something else? I mean, <laughs> we went from savages to Indians to American Indians to um, other, and then now we're something else. So it was just funny. And then when, so when that song came up, and especially when the whole speech was about America's diversity and celebrating everyone, and yet they use that song and it just reaffirms that um, indigenous erasure it still exists even today. Uh, very good. Yes, it still exists today. And I don't mean to go back on the song here because it's saying things that indigenous peoples didn't have an original thought process. And I know this so because I've talked to so many native people about in the song, it says a sign was painted, said private property. And another part of the song it says, by the relief office, I saw my people as they stood hungry and stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. So it, it, it's going on and on and uh, forgetting about and diminishing even today. I mean, as we even have Deb Holland from Close to Your Nation, a Pueblo, one of the Pueblos. Um, what do you expect out of Deb Holland? Because she has so much of a task um, returning things to pre-Trump era, but also even before that, but also having to deal with such things, land issues as bears ears. And of course, the land is is all, all we are, who we are as Native people, as you know, from a Dene standpoint and being in mm -hmm. that beautiful country down there. Your songs, your language comes from that area. In that time frame of what Deb Holland has to do in these next four years, what do you expect out of her? Because she has so much on her plate. Yeah, she does. That was also an emotional uh, time when she was finally uh, uh, confirmed because prior of uh, weeks up to that, uh, she had to face a room full of white conservative men, mostly who are challenging her on everything, everything but her experience and her her resume. And they were just attacking her on her what she tweeted or her uh yeah so stuff like that unimportant things and so yeah she has a lot to do and i'm excited because after like my article said after 500 years of 
never being heard and dis dismissed or eradicated. Um, we have we finally collectively, as Indigenous people here in the United States, have a seat at the table, and so I'm excited to see what she is able to do because I, even though we want her to do uh, make things right and turn over um, Trump era policies and. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. She still has to answer to Joe Biden. And um, so it'll be interesting to see if she um, is able to do what she wants to do. But I know she does have challenges because she is still part of an administration and she is still um, in America. She's still an American in sense. So she has to um look out for everyone and not just indigenous people. It's almost she's walking into a situation where her hands seem to be tied by one system, yet coming into it with her hands freely from a culture, uh, a thought process before 1492, there, that system is not working conducively with the land as original thought processes. I think it's the effect that people will have after she's long gone that maybe finally in your time as a young person, we'll see something happen because of because of her effectiveness within today's administration. And uh, as you said, the, the the Occidental, which is Europe and American thinking, is in the mm -hmm. way, but she has to contend with it as you and I do, speaking even this language of theirs right now between you and I to express what we are feeling about this song uh, this land is your land, which is obviously to not, it's not, it's not anybody's land that we belong to the earth, as Seattle said. Um, final thoughts, any final thoughts, Nia? And um, my questions seem to be mixed bags of questions and comments. <laughs> no, no, just in terms of land that it doesn't belong to anyone and, and Native people have always known this. Uh, I was in a panel discussion yesterday uh, uh, about a sustainable fashion and uh, they kept and they it was a diversity panel where they wanted to hear from indigenous voices and so me and me as a journalist and then uh, we had uh, Norma Flying Horse who's a fashion designer and then we have Kelly Holmes who is a uh, fashion journalist and model as well and they wanted a takeaway and I said basically um we as indigenous people have always known that um, because uh, we've always been inclusive, we've always been uh, sustainable, we've always been eco-friendly. And um, so now that the, like everyone's freaking out about climate change, it seems like they're coming to us for the answers. And I find it ironic because everything about us in the beginning, they took away and stole and tried to uh, destroy. And I just find it ironic now that they're, they're trying to ask us. And so my, basically my takeaway was, if you disrespect mother earth, she's gonna respond in the way that she knows how. She's gonna remind you whose land you're on. One of the quotes from Twitter within the In the Country Today's article, Rudy Regan wrote, wow, this land is your land, this land is my land, is not a song that be, should be sung at, at an inauguration. And it reminds me of maybe there should be a petition going around to say, please don't sing this song 
If you're going to have Native people in the administration, do not sing this song at anybody's inauguration because it's a dated piece that goes back to an American time that doesn't need to be now because that's not true anymore. So it never was true in the first place. So I'm thinking that I'm not saying that's what you should do, but <laughs> that maybe we'll all start this because I think that can actually come through now with Deb Holland in place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Wow. Any final words, Nia? Because thank you for this and the clarity to bring that. And I'm glad you're doing it because when I was young, the irony was in the language I was hearing. I want to accept it, but I can't. And, and basically, it's describing uh, the worst abuse is to deny, diminish, and disappear and make invisible the original peoples in the land that the newcomers have called home now. Any final words? Just that uh, indigenous people are still here. We're still here. We exist in a contemporary setting, just like everyone else. Uh, uh, I like to say John Wayne didn't kill us all. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're still here. And uh, I noticed, uh, well, I like to say, and I've tried to start a hashtag, like uh, the future is indigenous. And so I strongly believe that. And that's so true of all, anything that comes out of the mouths of any grassroots organization to make America great again is really to make America as it was before. This, this is what we're doing. This is what we're inheriting as Native people. And it's always a red struggle. But thank you so much, Nia, for being here and honoring First Voices Radio. And glad to hear your voice. And maybe we'll talk again and look forward to your next, your next thought process. Thank you so much, Nia, for being here on First Voices. Yeah, thank you. Freeway through reservation, make way for a brand new nation. Big ideas, we got brand new plans. Heaven knows we need this land, we're gonna build. Big high and wide, city streets through countrysides. Chemicals and pesticides, this land is our land. Parent man, don't waste our time. We're young and strong, we got hills to climb. There's a lot of room, but we need it all for slave trade. And shop mouths gonna build big factories for paper plates, plastic trees, styrofoam, and antifreeze. This land is Ollie. This land is Ollie. See to claim someplace we'd be free. We got hopeful hearts, working hands, and heaven knows we need this land because the world needs landfills, diet pills, and paper mills. We need country clubs and oil spills. This land is Ollie. This land is Ollie.